So let's pray, and then we'll get into our study. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for the... Oh, I'll finish praying. Sorry. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the, uh, the opportunity to be here today uh, studying your word. I just pray that you would bless the rest of our time together uh, and that it would be glorifying to you that the words of Scripture would uh, just be speaking truth into our lives, that your spirit would minister to our hearts, uh, that we would receive what you have uh, for us to learn today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So sorry to interrupt my own prayer, but I just remembered that I, per I almost forgot to um, dismiss kids for Sunday school. So go ahead and <laughs> go to Sunday school now, kids. <laughs> it's only like our third week of doing that. I'm not, I'm not used to it yet. All right, so today we are going to be going into really our last study, um, the last real series that we're going to be doing in the Old Testament. We've been going through the Old Testament narrative from creation, beginning with creation, really for years now. It's been at least two, maybe three years we've been going through the Old Testament. So we're finally coming to an end with that. We've been camping out most recently in the prophets for quite some time. In the last few months, we've been kind of looking at the events that happened during and after the exile. Last week, Mike wrapped up the book of Nehemiah for us, which in the timeline of the Old Testament, Nehemiah kind of falls towards the end of the Old Testament timeline. But there's one prophet, we've been in the prophets, but there's a prophet in the Old Testament that we haven't covered at all yet. We really haven't covered any of his story. And I just couldn't let us leave our time in the prophets without going through this one prophet story because it's just, it's so good. And we haven't, and we're not going to cover all of the, every single prophet. Um, but we've, we've tried to kind of go through the ones that either stand out as kind of unique, like Jonah, um, or some that are kind of representative of a lot of other prophets who have very similar writings, like Malachi. We did study Daniel, though we didn't go through his prophecies. We went through his story. Uh, his prophecies, we're actually going to come back to that later on, hopefully. But I think the first prophet we really studied was Malachi. Malachi is a great book that's very representative of many of the other prophets and prophecies about Israel. And we studied Jonah. Um, again, a really unique book, and he's a unique prophet in that, like, the whole story of Jonah is not just a lesson about running away from God. It's a picture of Israel. His whole story is a prophecy about Israel and her apostasy and the exile to come and a foreshadowing of the Messiah. It's an amazing book, and we, we had to cover that one because it's just so different from any of the other prophets. And we did a really quick overview of Jeremiah, if you remember. We covered Jeremiah in just two weeks. And then spent a little bit more time in Isaiah, because Isaiah is just so rich with messianic prophecies and hope for the king to come. It provides hope for the remnant of Israel, even through the exile, that one day their kingdom would be restored through someone from the line of David. So we covered you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are two of the three major prophets. The other one is Ezekiel. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are the three major prophets. We didn't cover Ezekiel, and he, does, he has some pretty fun stories. Maybe we'll come back to him later on at some point. But for now, you know, we thought those other two were representative enough of their overall message and mission was, was similar. 
And then Jonah and Malachi, those two prophets that we covered, are, are part of what the Jews would call the 12. There are 12 of what we would call the minor prophets. So we covered two out of the three major prophets, two out of the 12 minor prophets. And again, we're not going to cover all 15 of them. But there is one more prophet that we just have to spend some time with. I'm super excited about this one. And I know Mike mentioned it last week. It's the prophet Elijah. Why, why Elijah? Why am I so excited about Elijah? Well, Elijah does have some of just the coolest stories, in my opinion, in the whole Old Testament. It's with Elijah that we get just some of the most dramatic and satisfying action sequences featuring Yahweh, his God, since, you know, since the time of Moses and the Exodus. Like, we're getting more dramatic events like that. And I will admit that that's a big reason why I'm excited to go through the story of Elijah, because it's an exciting story. But that's not the only reason that he's worth studying. It's not even really the main reason that he's worth studying. It's really more because of how important he is to the bigger story and how he bridges the Old and New Testaments. And he's really incredibly significant as uh, a prophet and very unique. Uh, so we, I, we just couldn't leave the prophets without covering him. I'm not going to pull a mic and tell you to turn to the book of Elijah. There's, there's no book of Elijah. I'll just be straight with you. And so he's not even one of those 15. He's not a major or minor prophet, but he's so significant. So what's up with that? He's not even in, the, in that list. Um, and yet he is one of the most important prophets in the whole Bible. I would say the first, the first real prophet and probably the most significant prophet would be Moses. It was under Moses' leadership that Israel was you know, brought out of slavery in Egypt and established as a nation. And it was through him that the law was given and the covenant was made between God and Israel. And he's the one that's given credit for the first five books. And so he doesn't have just have one. He has five books in the Old Testament. He spoke with God face to face and he relayed God's message to the people, whether it was to Egypt or to Israel. He was God's mouthpiece spokesperson. And even though he had his own spokesperson, but that's another story. And, you know, through him, though, God's power was displayed in just these powerful acts of miracles against Egypt and for Israel. The last book of Moses, Deuteronomy, ends with this little footnote. It's kind of added by a narrative voice at the end. After it records the death of Moses, and then the narrator just kind of slips in. It's like the voice that starts speaking as the, the camera pans out and the credits start rolling. It's just like the final words of the, the book. The music crescendos. Anyway, so Deuteronomy 34, uh, starting in verse 10, says this. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. So Moses was unparalleled by all the prophets who came after him. But I would say that this guy Elijah comes in at a close second. And I think for reasons that will hopefully just kind of become apparent as we go through his story. But one indication of that is how often you find his name come up even in the New Testament. Several of the prophets do get shout-outs in the New Testament, right? So we have, you know, Jesus makes a reference to Jonah. Gospel writers love to point out certain um, ones, especially uh, like to point out the hyperlinks to Jesus's story um, in Isaiah and Jeremiah. They, they say, oh, look at the prophecies that are being fulfilled here. 
But in, in those cases, even, it's a reference really to the, the prophecies and the words and the message of the prophets more so than to the people, the prophets themselves. Whereas when you get references to Elijah in the New Testament, they're not quoting anything he said. They're referring to him as a person and, and how significant of a prophet he was and how powerful he was. So that's why we're studying Elijah. And, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at some of those ways in which he was so significant and why, you know, the name Elijah gets people so excited in the New Testament. But another interesting thing to make kind of just a mental note of is that Elijah is a significant prophet, not just in Christian tradition, but also in Jewish tradition. So it's not just the New Testament references that make him important. He is just even purely in an Old Testament context, very significant, very important. And that point, you know, it's, it's made all the more apparent when you realize that Elijah is significant, not just in Christian and Jewish traditions, but also in Islamic tradition. Uh, Islam puts a great deal of importance on the prophets, uh, since, you know, their own prophet Muhammad kind of builds on the, the power and the authority of the prophets before him. Uh, so just being familiar with the prophets in general, uh, but especially the ones who hold the most significance, can just kind of equip you to have more meaningful conversations with people from different backgrounds, and that's always an important thing to do. Um, it's important to understand how we differ from their theology, but a constructive conversation with people from other religions generally begins with finding common ground and a common denominator, and that's just something we don't necessarily think a lot about, I think. Um, but Elijah is, is one of those common denominators. So have I convinced you yet that Elijah is worth studying? Uh, hopefully you don't really even need convincing because, I mean, it's a part of the Bible, right? So it's obviously worth studying. Um, it's more that we couldn't not study it. And again, I think it's going to be really fun just because of the stories involved. But just keep in mind that these stories serve kind of a greater purpose in the, the greater context of the story. And that's, that's the why. So where, where is Elijah? Where do we find him in the Bible? Again, he, he doesn't have his own book. Um, so you won't, you won't find him in the table of contents. Um, in fact, there are several significant prophets who kind of show up throughout the story, but they don't have a whole book or a whole scroll you know, dedicated to them or their prophecies. They show up at different points in the story, generally to confront um, Israel or the kings of Israel and Judah. Remember um, the prophet Nathan, we covered the story of, of David and Bathsheba, and when he messed up, uh, so badly, um, Nathan comes in and confronts him with this story and helps him realize his sin. But Nathan doesn't have his own book. He just kind of shows up out of nowhere, and then he shows up a couple times. And Elijah is one of those prophets who's just woven into the story of Israel's history. So instead of introducing a new book like we've been doing for the last however many months, we actually have to go back to the book of First Kings. And we cover, we went through a good amount of First Kings, but obviously we didn't cover it fully because we totally skipped over Elijah. And so, yeah, we spent some time in First Kings. I think it was like a year, a year and a half ago, maybe. So we're going all the way back to First Kings for, for most of the story and then a little bit into Second Kings. But since we're jumping back, I want to give you just a visual of where we're going to be in the overall timeline. So this is a timeline that really shows a lot of what we've covered uh, over the last year plus. 
At the, across the top of that timeline, you can see kind of the major kingdoms and the empires who surrounded and, and eventually ruled Israel. So you have, you know, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And then right below that, you can kind of see the state that Israel was in. So from northern and southern kingdoms to just Judah to being in exile and then the post-exile. So the golden age of Israel, really, when it was a united kingdom, was under King David and King Solomon. So that's over on the far left of this timeline, before Solomon dies. And right after that, Israel splits up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, otherwise known as Israel and Judah. And then kind of towards the middle of the timeline, um, the, the northern kingdom, Israel, is taken away into exile by Assyria. And then that's where you have only Judah, Judah alone. That's the only kingdom left standing until Babylon eventually takes out Jerusalem. Judah's taken into exile. And then during Daniel's life, Daniel was you know, one of the Jewish exiles in Babylon, but then Babylon gets taken over by Persia. It's a whole uh, kingdom and king shift change. And then below all that, below the, the kingdoms and the major events, so kind of in the, that main body of this timeline, you can see the various prophets and other books, and I've highlighted all the ones that we've covered together. So you can see we've covered a, a good chunk of, of what's up there. We went through the story of the kings and exile up through Daniel, just looking at the narrative, and then we kind of started looking at the prophets from there. And we started kind of at the end with Malachi, and then went back to the middle for Jonah and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then we've been camped out over on that, that far right side for a while with, with Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. We've gone through all those, and now we're jumping all the way back to where you can see Elijah circled in red around 850, 800 B.C., just make a mental note here that Elijah does overlap with uh, some of the other prophets, Obadiah and Joel, but and they do have their own books. We haven't covered them, but Obadiah is going to make kind of a cameo appearance in Elijah's story. Not really cameo. It's more like a crossover episode, so remember that name. I make a lot of TV and movie references, don't I? I like TV and movies. So where we find Elijah here is about 100 years after King Solomon, who you know, he was king right after David, then Solomon died, but it was at least 50 years before even the Assyrian exile, and roughly 200 years before the Babylonian exile. So this is an in-between period where Israel and Judah were still their own kingdoms, but they were separate kingdoms, but at least they weren't conquered yet. Um, but they had mostly bad kings ruling in both kingdoms. The people were constantly turning away from Yahweh, worshiping other gods, and the prophets here were constantly telling them to repent and confronting the bad kings and warning them of the exile to come and saying, oh, you know, you're going to get punished for this, you're going to go into exile, but then your kingdom will be rebuilt. You know, that's all of the prophecies we've been looking at. But that's where Elijah comes on the scene, kind of towards the, the beginning, before any of the exile happens. And so hopefully this kind of helps you orient where you are in the story, find your bearings. So now that we know when Elijah is, uh, let's find out who he is. He's, he's introduced in 1 Kings chapter 17. So if you want to go ahead and, and find 1 Kings 17 in your Bible, we'll be spending pretty much the rest of our time in, in this chapter. So he gets, I say he's introduced here, but it's not really much of an introduction. It's, we don't really have any backstory for him. Uh, he just kind of shows up and he starts doing stuff. 1 Kings Chapter 17 starts off with this. 
Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Well, okay, so we're going to need a little bit more context to understand why he's making this proclamation to Ahab. But first, let's just acknowledge this little bit of information we are given about Elijah. Again, there's not much backstory, just that he's a Tishbite from the Gilead settlers. So I figured we might as well take a look at where that is on the map. So here's a map that shows this whole region. And the scale, if you can see the, the black line towards the top left, is 30 miles. So if you are adept at reading maps, you can kind of get a sense for the scale of this. It's, it's zoomed in fairly close here, but you can see everything from Edom to Damascus, and all of these little blips are where Elijah is going to be taken in his travels. So it's, it's a pretty wide region that he's going to be kind of scattered all, all over the place. Gilead, where he's from, is located east of the Jordan River. Um, so I, I circled that in red, and the Jordan River is that messy blue line that I kind of drew over it with a purple line. Uh, sorry, did I say blue? Purple line, um, kind of connecting the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Uh, and to the west of the Jordan, I put those two orange stars. The one to the north is Samaria. That would be the capital of Israel. And then the one to the south is Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. That kind of helps you get a little bit of a, it's probably hard to, you can't read all those text captions, but those are just all the different, the, uh, the events and the places that are mentioned throughout Elijah's story. So I might bring this up a couple more times just to get a reference to see kind of how far he's traveling. But for now, you know, back to First Kings, Elijah arrives suddenly here in chapter 17 with little introduction, but with great power in his words. Do you see the message that he gives to Ahab? As Yahweh, God of Israel, lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Those are some powerful words. And he's basically declaring to Ahab that there's going to be a famine that's going to last for years based purely on Elijah's command. No dew or rain means a drought, which means no water for crops, livestock, and that means starvation, suffering. This is not a positive thing. This is not good news for Ahab. This is not what Ahab wants to hear. And I was thinking just this morning, I was hearing on the radio about the droughts in California. Even today, droughts can be so devastating, certainly in, in other parts of the world, but even here in the U.S. where we have like technology and money to deal with just about anything, but droughts are still just a major issue in places like California where they're still struggling to even figure out how to deal with it. So it's a very powerful um, statement to make. Let's, let's back up a little bit. So who is this Ahab guy anyway? Why is Elijah pronouncing this message of doom to Ahab? Well, Ahab is, is the king of Israel at the, at the time. So Israel the, being the northern kingdom, um, he's king while Asa is, is king in Judah. He's not a good king. If we just go back a couple paragraphs to the end of chapter 16, I think we'll get some context that will be helpful for the whole rest of the Elijah story. So let's back up just a little bit to 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29. So just the last couple paragraphs there. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. 
But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. During his reign, Giel the Bethelite built Jericho. At the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, he laid its foundation, and at the cost of Segub, his youngest, he finished its gates. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. All right, so again, Ahab is king in Israel, while Asa is king in Judah. And his reign lasts for 22 years, and it's an infamous reign. Verse 30 literally says Ahab was more evil than all his predecessors. And then he married Jezebel, which is a problem because they weren't supposed to be intermarrying with those people at that time, especially not the king himself. And it's implied here, too, that Jezebel was kind of at least a factor in leading Ahab to worship these other gods, uh, Baal and Asherah. He served and worshipped these, these gods and went as far as to make a temple and set up these objects of worship. So just a, a quick note on these gods. Baal was associated with storms and rain and with power. And actually, pretty a lot of correlations to the Norse um, god of thunder, Thor, which is a little bit more familiar to us in our culture because of Marvel, mostly. And then Asherah was a goddess of fertility, and she's very similar to like the Greek goddess Aphrodite or the Roman goddess Venus. So we, we tend to have the Greek and Roman and Norse mythology more we're familiar than you know ancient uh, Near Eastern, but they're all very similar concepts, so it's kind of interesting to think about. But besides all of that... Uh, <laughs> 34 then goes on to make sure to point out it was under Ahab's reign, it was under his watch, that Jericho was rebuilt. What's the big deal with that? So it mentions that the word of Yahweh spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. What's that? So you may recall the story of Jericho. Uh, it's a pretty great story. It was with Joshua who led Israel after Moses died and the battle of Jericho. They, they march around the city seven times and they blow their horns. The walls come crumbling down. There's a great song. It's an awesome story. But after they destroyed the city, everything was destroyed. Joshua says this in, in chapter 6 of Joshua, uh, verse 26. It says, at that time, Joshua imposed this curse. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before Yahweh. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn, and he will finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. That's a really heavy curse, and obviously it's meant to never happen. It's meant so that nobody ever rebuilds the city of Jericho because it was just known as an evil city. And yet here comes this guy, Kiel, who has so much disregard for his own children that he just goes ahead and does it anyway and at the cost of his, his firstborn and his youngest. It's, it's terrible. It's a tragic thing. And the overall picture being painted here is of, of Ahab's reign just being saturated in evil and, and evil doers and in the adulterous worship of gods other than Yahweh. So that's kind of an important context to have in mind as we go into Elijah's story. 
Uh, when Elijah shows up in chapter 7 and announces the famine, it's in response to all this. And it's significant that Elijah specifically declares there will be no dew or rain because in doing so, he's asserting Yahweh's authority over those exact elements of creation which Ahab has been attributing to Baal. You're going to see a lot of that throughout the story. It's very cool. It's very intentional. It's not a coincidence that he's declaring famine by way of no rain, because Baal is the one who brings the rain, and Elijah's saying, no, Yahweh is going to say there's no rain. It's meant to humiliate the name of Baal while attributing power and glory to the name of Yahweh. Speaking of, of, of names, um, Elijah, Eliyah, means Yahweh is my God. So that's a very uh, appropriate name, I think, because most of Elijah's ministry is going to be focused on defending the name of Yahweh and asserting Yahweh's authority. Yahweh is my God. It's a pretty cool name. All right, so now we have the context of, of why Elijah is making this proclamation to Ahab. But can you imagine how this would have gone over with King Ahab? What do you think his reaction was? We don't really, it doesn't say exactly, but I think it's safe to assume he wasn't happy uh, in this moment. More than likely, he would have wanted to kill Elijah. So what happens next is a pretty logical progression. Uh, So let's just read the next few verses here, um, starting in verse 2. Then the word of Yahweh came to him, came to Elijah. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the Wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he proceeded to do what Yahweh commanded. Elijah left and lived at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the Wadi. After a while, the Wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Uh, is this anyone else's first time seeing the word wadi? Because um, Ellie asked me what that means, and, and I remember reading it. I don't know if it was this passage or another one. I had to look it up, and it's actually an Arabic word. And a wadi isn't something we use often in, in English um, because they're typically found in more of the Middle East region. And it's just a, a ravine or a valley that has water in the rainy season and dries up when it's not the rainy season. So that's what a wadi is. So it's not like a river or a lake that never goes dry. It's it's typical for it to to dry and fill up and dry. So Yahweh tells Elijah to run away and hide at this wadi, probably because otherwise he would have been a goner. Ahab would have probably taken him out. And he directs them to this place where during the famine, he was going to have a place to drink, at least for a little while, and then just casually be provided food by ravens. That's crazy. These birds, and not just any birds, ravens, which were unclean animals even, brought him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. And the fact that he was being fed by unclean hand or unclean talons, you know, that just hyperlinks right to Peter in the book of Acts, but we're not going to go there right now. It certainly wasn't glamorous. You know, Elijah was far from what we would consider comfortable uh, living here, but Because God still had work for Elijah to do, he did protect him and provided for him in a miraculous way. But he was fed by ravens. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? It's just so bizarre. And this won't be the last time that God provides for Elijah. 
And while this isn't the point of the story, I think it's worth just mentioning and, and remembering that you know when we think about God's provision and his faithfulness to provide us with what we need, what we need isn't the same as what we want necessarily, or definitely what makes us comfortable, or even what we think we need. But throughout the story, as God provides for Elijah, just realize he's getting what he needs to survive. The bare minimum, he's not living large. Um, but so this, this wadi, eventually he ran out of water. It stopped raining, just as he had said. But that was a problem for him too, because that means the wadi dries up. And obviously that was always in the plan, because that's what happens when a wadi, with a wadi when the rain stops. So obviously Yahweh has plans for Elijah to keep moving. Let's keep reading uh, now in verse 8. The word of Yahweh came to him, get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, please, Bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. And as she went to get it, he called to her and said, oh, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As Yahweh your God lives, I don't have anything baked. Only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. <laughs> Go and do as you have said. It's a little side note. Don't be afraid. Those are words of power. Usually, we don't see people saying that to people other than angels or God himself. Don't be afraid. So that's, that, that, those are authoritative words. Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what Yahweh, God of Israel, says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day Yahweh sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. And then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty and the oil jug did not run dry according to the word of Yahweh he had spoken through Elijah. So Yahweh had Elijah go all the way up to uh, Zarephath, which is up north. I'll go back to the map here. It's kind of by the Mediterranean Sea. So that, it's the green circle that I have up way up north by the sea. That's Zarephath. And he says, Yahweh says to Elijah to go meet a widow here. And she would have been a Gentile. She, she wasn't a Jew. She's going to provide for Elijah. But when he finds this woman, she's so destitute herself that she's essentially, she's getting ready to prepare one more meal for herself and her son before they die because she only has enough flour and oil to make one small loaf of bread. But Elijah tells her to go ahead and, and make, make the bread, make bread for me first, and then you can make bread for yourself and die. Uh, but then he says, you know, Yahweh says he will provide and so she does, she, she still has flour and oil left after she makes the first one, and she continues, she, she continues making more bread and continues to have more flour and oil for days and days on end without ever running out of flour or oil. And again, this is through God's just miraculous 
provision. And this time, it's not just for Elijah, it's benefiting this poor widow and, and her son. But notice that this woman was asked to act in faith by giving literally all she had left to Elijah instead of feeding her own self. Before God's provision was actually made evident, Elijah stated it would happen, but it hadn't actually happened yet. So she had no proof that it would happen. She had to act in faith. And, you know, while God doesn't always necessarily test our faith in that way, he certainly can. And true faithfulness aligns our priorities such that we give of ourselves and of our possessions selflessly. I think a very analogous story here is of the poor widow who Jesus saw giving just the two small coins that she had. Uh, And he said that she was giving far more than those who were giving these large amounts and boasting about it. And I think, too, Jesus, his words in Matthew 6 are relevant here. Uh, Matthew 6, 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's a matter of priorities, who or what we seek first and above all else. Is it ourselves or is it God, the kingdom of God? And in this case, the widow acted according to God's word, and her faith was rewarded. And they lived happily ever after, right? Not so fast. You know, we, have, we have one more problem here. If we keep reading uh, in verse 17, it says, After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness got worse until he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Man of God, what do you have against me? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? But Elijah said to her, Give me your son. So he took him from her arms, brought him up to the upstairs room where he was staying, and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Yahweh, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? And then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. He cried out to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So Yahweh listened to Elijah, and the boy's life came into him again, and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house, and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God, and Yahweh's word from your mouth is true. (laughs) But as if miraculously saving her from starvation wasn't enough, (laughs) raising her son from the dead was apparently what it took to prove to this widow that Elijah was in fact sent by Yahweh and spoke the truth. So the purpose of the son's illness uh, becomes evident. It wasn't like she thought that maybe it was because of sin, either her sin or his, that the boy died, but ultimately so that the widow could witness God's power, thereby producing faith in, in the word of Yahweh. And just realize, too, by the way, that this is literally an unprecedented display of God's power uh, through, through human intervention here. Not even Moses raised anyone from the dead. Elijah is the first prophet or, or any human person to raise someone from the dead. 
uh, to participate. Obviously, it's God's power raising him from the dead, but Elijah's intervening uh, and, and uh, participating in this. And Elisha, after him, is really the only other one. But it, dem- it demonstrates that God has power over sickness and death. You can choose to demonstrate that power through a human. And so this whole story so far, the whole, you know, this whole chapter of First Kings has hyperlinks all over it. You have the, the miraculous provision of food and water. That should be taking us back to, to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember the, the manna and the quail and the water coming from strange places. And then after being fed by unclean birds, Elijah's fed by an unclean Gentile woman. And that, that whole process brings the word of God and, and faith in him, in, in God, to a Gentile household. I mean, come on, that's a really heavy foreshadowing of the message of the gospel and that great mystery that Paul talks about in his letters of God bringing his blessing to the Gentiles. And then, of course, Yahweh's presence being made evident by displaying power even over death itself. Again, other than with Elisha, who's really like kind of a weird continuation of Elijah because he like goes on with it. We'll get there, but... That doesn't happen again. This resurrection from the dead doesn't happen again until Jesus, which is probably why some people asked him, hey, are you Elijah? Of course, he's not Elijah. He's much more. But they were picking up on that precedent of that foreshadowing, the promise. At the end of Malachi, remember, there's this promise that Elijah would someday return. And so, and this is kind of why that is so significant. This is powerful stuff already. And Elijah's just barely getting started here. This is still like the prelude to, we haven't gotten to, uh, go back to my other slide. We haven't gotten back to that intense fire yet. Uh, isn't that cool looking fire? We haven't even gotten to fire yet. It gets really intense, really dramatic. And I'm excited to get to the next couple chapters. Uh, remember this chapter started with Elijah confronting Ahab and his evil ways. And that confrontation isn't over. This famine is just the beginning. Soon, Yahweh is going to confront Ahab's sin and consequently all of Israel's sin and the the Baal worship head on and just this glorious, furious display of power. But one thing I love about Elijah's story is that it reveals something about the complexity of God. We get to see his his glory and his power and his his vengeance against evil. But before all that, we get to see how he cares for his people. God cares about confronting evil, for sure, but he also cares about taking care of his children and and widows and orphans. It shows the tenderness and the compassion of God. That in all his rage against evil, he does not forget the righteous. And though he strikes the land with famine, he, he protects and provides for Elijah and for a poor widow and her son. He lifts up the lowly and the forgotten while humbling the proud. And I think, you know, reflecting on just God's nature is as much application as is necessary in a passage like this. And I meant to kind of give you a disclaimer before we started this whole series that Elijah is not going to be nearly as application-oriented as Nehemiah was. You know, Nehemiah was packed full of just application. We can make bullet points, and it was great. But Elijah's not set up that way. Um, the story just isn't isn't full of those practical application points, and that's okay because it shows... God, and, and I, the main goal is just to kind of get a better appreciation, a deeper appreciation for the story of Elijah and how it fits into the bigger picture. But 
if you want some personal application to take away, I would go back to just the faithfulness of Elijah and the widow and her willingness to just give of herself out of faith um, and to that question of, you know, who or what are you seeking uh, and serving? Is it yourself? Is it the idols of this world? Or is it the kingdom of God? And if you ask, you know, how, how do you seek the kingdom? So that can be kind of a vague, so how do you seek the kingdom? Well, I would say by serving Jesus. And if you ask, how do I serve Jesus? You know, I would point you to Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to leave you with this passage. Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 31. This is a passage that obviously, it has a ton to unpack. And hopefully, you know, we're going to be studying Matthew later on this year. But so we're not going to, you know, unpack everything here. But hopefully you can see kind of the connections that, um, to if you think of seeking the kingdom and the, the connections to First Kings that we read today. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to the, also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father, I just pray that you would help us in our faith today. That you would, in our weakness, be strong. That you would show us how, how to give of ourselves, how to live faithfully, not just say that we believe in you, but to actually be committed to you, to your name, 
to go wherever you lead us, even if it's uncomfortable. Whether it's a place or a situation or a conversation or, you know, in our relationships, in our work, that we would be seeking first the kingdom. And that you would just give us wisdom and discretion to not live foolishly with what you've given us, but to invest what you've given us and to be good stewards, but not to be consumed with worry or fear about what we have or what we'll do because we know that you are in control and that you do provide for what we need. I pray that you would help us be content and not fall into covetousness. And just most of all, Lord, that we would grow closer to you, that we would spend time with you so that we know uh, when, when your spirit is leading us, where it's leading us, how it's leading us, and that we would be faithful to follow. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. I'm, I hope you're as excited as I am to keep going through the book of Elijah. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We have a few minutes before Sunday school is out. We want to just hang out together for a while. <laughs>